Um, turn to Hebrews chapter um, 13. We're probably going to back up a little bit for context, but go ahead and turn to Hebrews 13, and we'll get into our study tonight. But first, let me, let me pray. Lord, I, um, I'm thankful for this community. I'm thankful for this church family. I'm thankful for the lives that you have saved by your grace and by your mercy. Thank you. I'm thankful that you came to save us. There was no hope in us saving ourselves. And I'm thankful. I just was really enjoying the words to that song that we, in this place, in your presence, we have nothing to prove, (laughs) nothing to gain, nothing to strive for. It's been finished. It's done. And we can rest. We can rest in your love as accepted children of God. And I'm thankful for that, Lord. And I pray that we could feel the sense of that pressure come off as we just uh, enjoy your word. Enjoy the, the feast, so to speak, that you've prepared for us spiritually in the Bible. Um, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to talk through it. Help us um, really grasp the implications of this, especially in the time and place that we're at. Very relevant. Help us to um, see that. Help us to get it. And I pray that you change us through this and that you would encounter us through this, that um, we would sense you here and engage with you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Every week we've been deciphering the meaning of our passage in the book of Hebrews as we've been going through. We're getting to the end of of the book of Hebrews. And we keep deciphering its meaning through the larger context. Really important when we're going through Hebrews to see the larger context. And that is tremendous, tremendous hardship and suffering. That's why I picked this book in the middle of the pandemic and everything that we were going through because um, we were suffering and some of us are suffering and we live in a world that is that suffering is part of. And part of what suffering means is that things just don't go according to what we planned, do they? Uh, we have plans and they don't work out. They fall through. Things that we think we can count on or people that we think we can count on aren't people that we can count on anymore. And we live in a world that's filled with betrayal and filled, filled with disappointment and hurt and heartache. All of those things are normal experiences for us. And so I love the Bible for this reason because the Bible is filled with things to help us hold on and not give up. It understands the world that we're in. It doesn't paint a, a picture uh, of some, um, you know, heaven here on earth yet, even though we're heading that way. But right now it understands this is a war zone that we're in. And we felt that. And we, I think in some ways we felt that more acutely this year or this last two years than we have ever in my own my memory anyway. Um, this book was written to people who were so beaten down and abused by their circumstances Um, that they understandably wanted to give up. They wanted to call it quits. They have been beaten up and torn up, and they're losing heart. And this is every single turn of this book. Every single lesson or theme is giving them new encouragement. Don't give up. Hang in there. Don't stop. Don't, Don't lose heart. Stick in there. So with that in mind, let's read... I'm going to back up to chapter 12, actually. Let's start, just to get a running start at this, let's start at verse 28, and then I'm going to read through verse 9 of chapter 13. He says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
We talked about that last week. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with, re- with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That sets this chapter up. Let's keep going. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Verse 4, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and, um, and be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. So, we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Okay, um, it might be interesting, uh, if you were paying close attention, you might be wondering, and rightfully so, what does this have to do with suffering? It, it seems like an awkward conclusion to a book that's been all about suffering, and seems um, at first glance that those verses have really nothing to do with suffering at all. Almost like, it almost seems like he's ending with like an ethical to-do list. Real quick, do this, do that, don't do this, do that. Uh, maybe some ecumenical things, what we should do as a church. This is how we should live as a church and those types of things. But hopefully, I hope to walk this through with you a little bit and show you how this is a perfect fit into what we've been talking about. What we're actually being told here, and I'll tell you the punchline up front, he's basically saying, if I could reword what he's saying, he's saying, you and I will never make it through a world like this You and I won't make it through the brutalities of life, a life like this, without the kind of community that's being described here. The title of our message today is Better Together. And that's what he's saying. And it's interesting, he's writing to people who have lost their traditional communities. They've been expunged from their religious world. Some of them have lost their families because they've become Christians. They're not allowed in synagogue anymore. They're not allowed to worship the God of their fathers anymore. Some of their uh, properties have been taken from them and burned down. And yet he's saying, you you won't be able to make it alone. We've got to have people together. We've got to come together. You'll never make it in life without being deeply and strongly embedded in a robust tightly woven, close community of people who've also experienced the grace of God. That's my sermon in a sentence, I guess you could say. You'll never make it in this life. You won't. I'm trying to be hyperbolic on purpose. You'll never make it in this life without being deeply and strongly embedded in a robust, tightly woven, close community of people who've who've also experienced the grace of God with you. Church. Okay, how do I know that that's what this passage is talking about? Is that like a pet sermon of mine? No, it really is in this passage. Let's back up for some context. Chapter 12 is all about the presence of God. We, we talked about that last week. All about the presence of God. Look again at the last two verses of chapter 12 and you'll see it. 
He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's talking to people who are being shaken to their core. Remember, our message was about being unshakable last week. He's talking to a people that are being shaken. And yet he says, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Therefore, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Okay, the phrase, God is a consuming fire, fire is a reference to the Shekinah glory of God or the manifest presence of God referred to over and over again in the Old Testament. The presence of God was manifest as fire and smoke. In the Old Testament. And when the presence of God came on to Mount Sinai, as is referenced in the beginning of chapter 12, or into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, so that you could actually approach the presence of God, the presence of God was, on one sense, terrifying. It was a terrifying experience. You can read the accounts of people being scared, wanting in one sense to get away. It was a traumatic experience and fatal, actually, if you connected with the presence of God. You died from it. Like we said last week, you don't see in the Old Testament a bunch of worshipers with their lattes, just comfy, raising their hands to to God. They were terrified. There was a shaking that was going on. And yet... As Renee brought up earlier today before service, and yet as terrifying and fatal as this is in the Bible, the Bible tells us over and over again that at the same time, the presence of God is also what every one of us was actually built for. It's this dual thing. We're terrified of something that we need. That's what you find in the Bible. We're scared to approach something that we also at the same time desperately want and need and are actually made for and cannot be fulfilled without. And that's the interesting place we find ourselves in as humans. We need something that we are terrified of. It's what, you really, it's what you're really looking for. We were designed, the Bible says, not to center on self. Not to center on ourselves, but to stand in the presence of the glory of God and defer to and center on and to adore Him. And that, the Bible would say, is fulfillment. That's what it means to be fulfilled. It's what you're really looking for in your life. In fact, I'll even say this. In all of your pursuits right now, whatever the, even if you deem them unspiritual or ungodly, behind that, whether you know it or not, God is really what you're looking for. This is the love you're looking for, as one commentator puts it, in every set of arms. This is the love that you're looking for in every person of significance that you want to impress, that you care about what they think. You might think you're looking for their approval. You're really looking for something eternal, the Bible would say. This is the gold you're looking for in all your competitions. This is the rest that you're looking for in all your vacations or houses or amenities or whatever it might be. Nothing else is going to satisfy the deep places of your soul except the presence of God. And whether you know it or not, you are worshiping. Even if it's misdirected, you're worshiping, you're you're striving, you're going after something that you intuitively know that you desperately need to breathe. Mankind was made for purpose. We have to have it. But because the presence of God is also so terrible and so terrifying in the Old Testament, it had to be mediated if you were going to enjoy it. 
In other words, someone had to stand between you and God. There had to be a representative uh, for you before God and a representative for God before you. This was Moses and the entire tabernacle system. And most of the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is answering, honestly, the obvious question, how do you acceptably get to God's presence? How do you return to Eden? That's really the storyline, the narrative of the first five, well, the entire Bible, really, but the, especially the first five books of the Bible. By the end of Genesis, well, by the beginning of Genesis 2, the end of Genesis 1 and into the first part of chapter 2, you've got mankind in the, in the rest of God, resting with him, fulfillment in his presence, walking in the coolness of the day, that is purpose. And then we, you know the story, we fall from that. We lose it. The, the uh, scholars call it the fall in the Bible. And we're cast east of Eden. And we see things like, you know, Cain killing Abel, you know, uh, premeditated murder happening. And all sorts of fallout from this sin between us and God. And the rest of the narrative is how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to God's presence? And really. <laughs> The answer to that is really the entire point really culminates in the book of Leviticus, especially Leviticus chapter 16, where it talks about the, the Day of Atonement, where Israel comes back into the presence of God. Leviticus is answering the question of how to worship God by outlining what you've got to eat. It's, it's an insanely boring book. You know, it's very tedious um, it outlines what you need to eat, what you have to wear, every ceremony, how to clean up before and after, the rituals involved, observances, and on and on and on it goes. Because the way you worship God in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, listen, the way you worship God in the tabernacle, the way you could approach this terrifying presence mediated through, uh, through Moses was by doing everything just right. Perfectly. That's how you did it. You had to ascend the mountain of the Lord, perfectly prescribed as mediated through Moses and the tabernacle system. There was no room for error. It was tedious. It was exact. It was, a, it was laborious. There were infinite number of performance and rituals and ceremonies. But... That was mediated through Moses. That was the old covenant. That was the old way. And chapter 12 of Hebrews says, now Hebrews is comparing that old system to the new covenant. And he says, now the presence of God is mediated now through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that precious fact, God's presence now comes to live in our bodies. He is tabernacled among us, John says. And uh, the New Testament goes on to say that your bodies, your physical bodies are now little tabernacles where the presence of God, the terrifying, terrible, awe-inspiring presence of God actually lives in you. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is the priest to end all priests. He is the tabernacle to end all tabernacles. He's the king that ends all kings. And now through him, the presence of God actually lives in us now. So that which used to be fatal, 
that which used to destroy us, that which used to be traumatic and terrifying can now come into our lives. That's why we can come here this morning and we can say, okay, we're actually in God. Us sinful people can come into God's presence because of the new mediation of Jesus Christ. So in light of that, the question inferred again in chapter in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12 is now in light of that what does worship look like now how do we worship god now in this new covenant now what does it look like to enjoy god's presence how do we worship god acceptably now the old way is over so then what's the new way of doing this right How do we live appropriately in God's presence? Okay, that's the context of chapter 13. He's setting this up. uh, Chapter 12 is is asking that question, and chapter 13 is the answer. And um, you're not, I I can almost guarantee that you're not not expecting the answer. It's an unexpected answer. It, it, um, It turned my head completely around. What I, what I was expecting. How do we live in the presence of God? This is chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, basically asks the question, how do we live in the presence of God as mediated through Jesus Christ? In chapter 13, here's the answer. Love one another as brother and sisters, entertain strangers, and open your life to prisoners, and on and on it goes. That's, that's the Bible's description of church. And a responsible worship, worshiping life to the new covenant. According to the flow of this scripture, now the way we worship God is by being involved in deep and intimate Christian community. That is how we worship God. Now the way we experience, I mean, put it the way the text is putting it, the way we experience the glory of God, the presence of God, and the way it interacts with us is not through rituals, ceremonies, observances, performances, but through deep participation with other people who've also experienced his grace as we all live and do life together. That is how the Bible describes church. There are are now... um, you could say there are now communal practices that the grace of God creates that we are to be deeply involved in. The way we experience the presence of God and the way we show the world His glory is not through rituals and ceremonies, but it's through entrenched relationships, intimate relationships. That's how we show the world God's glory. The presence of God is in our, in our hearts should create radical new relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church and radical new relationships with people outside the church, what the Bible calls here strangers. That's how we worship. This is how the Bible describes church. And it's a, can, you, can you see what's missing here? This is an an immensely more detailed description than what happens here on Sundays. Isn't it? I hope you can see that. Um, Let me try to play with this in a few different ways so that we can really understand. This text is saying that you don't worship anymore by attending services. I mean, that's not what I expected. We don't worship anymore by attending services. According to this... 
you can't judge the life or health of a church only by the energy or lack of it that you feel on a Sunday service when you come in. That's how a lot of people judge a good or a bad church. I'm going to go to that church because they lifted their hands when they were singing songs. Or the pastor was great. The band was awesome. The teaching was incredible. None of that is listed here in in the Bible. None of it. Here's what's interesting, too. Did you know that when it comes to choosing a church based on a pastor, did you know that the word pastor arguably is translated in some translations only once in the New Testament and with very little description. The pastor is not the most important member of the church. Instead, what you get is descriptions of this, where all of us together are playing a part like a body, all functioning functioning together. I'm just a pastor playing my part, doing my bit. This church does not, thank God, ride on my shoulders. We are what we are because you're here. I can really say it's not the same without you. It's different. I've said this before, but um, it's always a striking illustration for me because I've been a part of churches where we would do several services in a row. And it was incredible how different every service would be from from a practitioner's point of view. Um, And those of you that have served in multiple services, you know this. But from the stage's perspective, it's all the same. It's the same songs. It's the same um, announcements. It's the same um, activity. It's the same Bible study. It's the same structure, the same format. And yet, any worship leader or or pastor will tell you that first service could just be alive and happening, and the next service can just seem dead in the room. Why? Because church is made up of people and a community, and we're all different, and we have different experiences, and we come with different uh, stories from the week, and things that we've been through, and things that we need, and the way that we're taking in the truth, it's all different, and so things can be different, even though we're doing the same thing by and large. Why? Because it's not a production. We are here as a family, and as a community. In other words, chapter 13 is saying, we worship God in community. You're not experiencing the, let me use the words of the text, you're not experiencing the consuming fire or the empowering presence of God without community. That's what it's saying. Our God is a consuming fire and you're going to experience that together. We are better together. Really important and appropriate as we're becoming more and more together after COVID-19. The power of being together is so important. That's what we hope for when we move into Emmanuel, that we can continue to be together, and not just on Sundays, but more that more organic things would start to sprout, like movie nights or going to the park, stuff that's not necessarily on the church calendar, but that's just happening. That's why home fellowships are so important and so on. Now look at the metaphor that he gives to describe Christian community. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. You probably know that in the Greek, that's the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. So in other words, he's saying straight up, practice brotherly love. And because that term, I mean, we have a whole city named after it. We, you know, we kind of throw it around. I think it's kind of lost its... um, power to us, if you're a Christian, 
someone who's experienced the grace of God, then this statement that every other person who's a Christian and who's experienced the saving grace of God is your brother or your sister because they're in your same family, this is a very radical statement to, to, to describe church. So let's, um, let's explore it a little bit. What are some things that you think of when you think of an ideal family? What are some things that come to your mind? When you think of an ideal family, what do you think? Love, yeah. Mm-hmm. Support, yes. Anyone else? Communication. Yeah, that's important. Yep, very important. Encouragement. Yeah, encouragement, totally. When you think of a family, what do you think about? Think of your own families. Think of your kiddos. What makes you a family? Teamwork. Teamwork. Integrity, okay, yeah. Okay, I, here's what I think of. I think of. I think of loyalty. That's the first thing I think of. Think of your siblings. Uh, many of you don't like your siblings very much, right? You think they're weird or you can't relate to, to the kinds of things they relate to. Maybe they have different political views. Maybe they have different beliefs. Um, they may have very different beliefs and values in the way they live their lives. But in spite of all that... They're still your family. And to an extent, you feel a sense of obligation and loyalty to them. And you should, rightfully so. You absolutely should. Do you know of anything else in this world that, is, that can sustain two different opposing opinions or political views or economic classes and still love each other at the end of the day and have some raucous fighting and still love each other at the end of the day like a family? There is no other institution like it except how the church is supposed to be. The church represents people of all sorts of different uh, secondary beliefs, all, all sorts of different stories of life and economic classes and all sorts of things, and yet we come together under the banner of Jesus Christ and we have unity. There is no other institution on this planet like that except the family and the church. And the Bible says we are a family. Uh, at the end of the month, I'm actually going to be flying to Nashville to go to my grandmother's 90th birthday party. And my, this side of my family is this very large New York Italian family. They're all from the South Bronx, New York. And um, every stereotype that you can think of of a large New York Italian family, that really is truly them. They're loud. Um, when they're loving on each other, they're yet, you know, to you it seems like they're about to get in a fist fight. They're yelling at each other. Um, they're not, I don't think, Christians. Um, so, you know... You know, you need a brain scrubber to get some of the things out of your mind that they're talking about. And they're always fighting. They're always at each other. And there's so many different views. There's, there's one, my uncle, who is um, a conspiracy theorist on one side of the political spectrum, on the more progressive side. He's an old hippie. Um, but on the other on the other end, uh, my aunt she is a conspiracy theorist on the Republican side, and man, do they fight! You know, I follow them on Facebook at times, and boy, do they just go at it and they yell at each other, and it is just lively. But at the end of the day, they are fe- as dysfunctional as they are. I'm having trouble hearing you. They are they are extremely loyal to each other. They're extremely loyal to each other. Um, and, 
According to this passage, so it must be with fellow Christians. In families, fights are often more rowdy because the love is so strong. The loyalty is there. You're not afraid anyone's going to leave. We're brothers and sisters at the end of the day. So we can have some good old fights because we're not afraid of losing. And we can come to each other and say, that really hurt my feelings. And we'll make up at the end of the day and we get stronger for it. Boy, does our society need something like that. That's an idea of unity, isn't it? Absolutely. There's also, I think, very little pretense in the family, right? You've seen your siblings at their worst. And they've seen you at your worst. You've seen them, you know, you've seen them, your sister without her makeup on. You've smelled your brother's breath when he wakes up in the morning. You know all their nuances and quirks. You've heard them say things in, to their family that they would never say in public. Why? Because their family knows what they really mean. They know it's just a joke. Where in public, people would be so, so offended. They know these things about you. So that means you can't fool them. They know who you are. So there's this built-in transparency and intimacy in a family. There's reality that goes on in the family. And so, according to this, it must be with fellow partakers of the grace of God in the family of God. Think of the economic ramifications to this metaphor. Here's where it starts getting really convicting, especially in a place like America and Seattle. Um, Early documentation uh, records Christians as always sharing their stuff. Acts says they didn't regard their things as their own. Well, if you think about it in terms of this metaphor, of course not. They're brothers and sisters. Of course. They're going to share. They're going to give when when someone's lacking. They share the same. Think about uh, families. They share the same inheritance. They share the same resources. They eat out of the same cupboards and out of the same fridge. They share the same living space. Brothers and sisters have a claim on each other's wallet sometimes. They have claim on your resources and your living space. It's, it's, uh, it's radically different culturally as well and racially. If you've experienced the grace of God in Christ, the other people who've also experienced that, no matter their race, culture, or how different they are, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ, according to this passage. This has the power to create, as the Bible says, a new ethnos in the Greek, a new humanity in the Greek, where there's this radical ethnic healing going on. In fact, because of this, almost all ways of classifying each other are rendered obsolete when you're in Christ. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it. In Galatians chapter 3, he said, So in Christ Jesus, all are children of God. That's family language, right? All are children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. You've clothed yourself with Christ. So therefore, verse 28, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Do you see how unifying this is? Because of the gospel. And perhaps the most interesting implication of this is that this shows that this community should be the single most shaping influence in your life. If you're wondering how involved you ought to be in church, or how involved the community ought to be in your life, this should be, if this is a family, think of the metaphor, this should be the single most shaping influence in your life. Uh, Sociologists tell us today, contrary to how independently you might feel here in America, um, you are... According to all the science, you are by and large, for better and for worse, the product of your family. You can't escape them. They're in you. 
They're in you. The culture, our culture, on the one hand, loudly proclaims, you are the product of your own choices. You're a strong, independent person. Trust yourself. And yet, that sounds so empowering and so wonderful, but secular science tells us that it's completely not true. It's not true at all. Your family is, your family is the single most influential power in your life. Parents, uh, secular science, still, even though your teenagers might roll their eyes at you and not, not seem to care what you think, the science tells us that you are still the single most influential person in their life. The people that you live with seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, that is what shapes you more than anything else. More than your choices, more than your education, more than your podcasts or the books you read or your programs or your research and all your friends or your clubs or whatever it might be, it is your community and your community is your family. This, us. So if you think that by coming to service or listening to some great teaching, or some good music, or you know, if that's every week you think that's what it is, or taking a class at a church, or whatever it might be, you're wrong. The question is, you do not give up your privacy. If you do not give up your privacy or become accountable, you do not actually, if you don't get involved into deep relationships where your personal lives and daily lives are connecting to others that are partaking in God's grace, then you're part of a Christian club, not a church. That's what we're striving to be, is people safe enough for us to be close to each other. When I was in high school, there was a group of people that are still my best friends today. A lot of you met my friend Dave yesterday who came out to um, Noble's birthday party in the park with his little boy Levi. That's exact, That's um, Noble's age. And you know, I think back to the time, my most formative years in a church, and my pastor was amazing. He was, um, the pastor that I was under was one of the most, still to this day, one of the most anointed preachers I've heard But looking back, it was my friends that saw me every day. It was my friends that we went to school. We went to the same school. We were together after school. We went to church together. We did our homework together. We saw each other every day, and they challenged me. I remember when my friend Wes pulled me aside and said, I never want to see you do that again. You're better than that. And it hurt so good, though. It hurt so good. He had access into my life. He had earned the right to wound me. And we need that. We need people in our lives because we have blind spots, right? They're called blind spots because it means you can't see them. It go, this it has its roots into what marriage looks like. It, married people, let me remind us, marriage is not here to make you happy. It's here to make you Holy. Therefore, we can expect rough marriages if they're doing their jobs right. Because we call each other out. We say, I signed up for the best version of you. Therefore, yeah, I'm going to keep talking to you about this kind of stuff. Because I believe in you. I wouldn't be a pastor today if it wasn't for my friend Dave and all the other people in my life that I still am in touch with. That is a church, that's where shaping happens. Uh, you know, this is fine. Teaching and preaching, it's good. You're probably going to forget next week or you're probably going to, by the time you go to your home groups and try to discuss this message, it's going to 
be a while. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place budgeted in every home group for just recall because <laughs> we're already starting to lose it. I go to a home group and I can't even remember what I taught on the last Sunday. They're like, Mike, what? And I'm like, what is it? Hebrews, which one? Oh, yeah. And we have to, because we forget. But people are with us all the time, living epistles, speaking the word of God to us. Now, I also want you to see how outward this community is. And this is surprising to me. Because when you, when you think of a community as close and as intimate as a family that this passage is talking about, again, think of a family, you immediately think of a closed kind of a community, a community that you can't get into. Right? Have you ever um, grown up, maybe you grew up in a broken home or a hurting home and you, your friends have a really nice family and you always wish, man, I wish they'd adopt me, but you always know I'm not one of them. Right? It's a closed system. You can get close, but not that close. Well, surprisingly, this, there is an inward and an outward vibe to this passage. Verse 1 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. That's the inward part. We just talked about that. Family. But then verse 2 says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Um. Brothers and sisters is the word Philadelphia. Strangers is the word Philoxena. You know what it means? It means show hospitality to people you cannot trust. That's what it means. I'm not making it up. It's the Greek definition. Verse 1 says to work hard at loving the insiders, loving the people with your same beliefs, us in the church. Then verse 2 says to work really hard at loving the outsiders. It's an incredibly strong word. Philoxena, it's to love strangers. It means to open your living space, to open your wallet, to open your resources to people that you're other... This is the, here's the quote. To people that you're otherwise suspicious of. People that won't give you back. People that may not ever rehabilitate. That may not get fixed. We are to love people without reserve. And that, what this means is that this community is something that you don't have to prove yourself to get into. It's a complete community of grace. And this is how we're to worship. This is how we're to worship God, by loving each other and by showing hospitality to strangers. We're really uh, happy our family is super happy this week because our mother, my mother-in-law is here to visit us all the way from California, and she's a light wherever she goes. We love having her with us, um, and Noble is, has a very special connection with his grandmother, but she was just telling us today that she met this woman in a random place who uh, shared with her that she had this older lady that had just lost her husband, and my mother-in-law says, can I just give you a hug? <laughs> just hugged her right there and just showed her hospitality. That's, that was worship. That was church. She wasn't in a church building, but that was church. That was the love of God and the love of Jesus in, her, in, in that person's life. Now, that person may not get better, so to speak, but Jesus visited that woman right then and there. That's what it looks like to be a church. It's not just on Sundays. And... We don't have time to get more into that. In fact, we'll, we'll make it a part two because there's a lot to say about what it looks like 
for us to worship Jesus to outsiders as well. And we'll save that for next week. But today, here's what I'm hoping you see. See the importance, the necessity of being together. Being together. It's what we were made for. You know, we, we uh, out of necessity, we spent about seven months on YouTube as a church. And you know, it was wonderful for that time. It was great. Um, it got us through. It was provision. But it was like, I tell people, it's like a spare tire. You know, when, you, when you're, you get a flat and you put a spare tire on, but then you just, you don't get it fixed and you just keep driving it. You know, people tell you, you got to get that fixed. Your car wasn't meant to permanently be driving with a spare. You got to get the right one on there. Otherwise, it gets dangerous. It gets very dangerous. That's where we're at as a church. We're ready to take that spare off and put the real thing back on and come together as a church, be together. And that doesn't just mean on Sunday mornings. I want to encourage you guys, get involved into home fellowships. We have one going on on Thursdays. We have a men's group on Tuesdays. Um, You know, we have more that are, uh, we have another one on Tuesdays. We have two on Tuesdays. Yeah, Christine's doing one on Tuesdays and um, she's going to start back up in the fall. Um, And we've got, uh, a men's group on Tuesday. We have uh, another group going on on Thursdays at the Hartman's house. You guys get involved with it or do something yourself. You don't need my permission to have people over. Just have people over. The Scrog said, we're having a movie night. Can you announce it? I mean, done. You know, it, start having it. Invite each other over for coffee. Get to, go to parks with one another. Go to a, one of the billions of farmer's markets together. That's what uh, the Andersons and I have done. So, Be together. Do life together. Call each other. Be honest with each other. Be transparent with one another. Be gracious to one another. You know, um, you have to kind of earn the right to wound somebody. You have to prove that you're safe. And what that means is you're not going to, you know, sin sniff people or squash them when they get vulnerable. I'll never forget a time that I was extremely vulnerable to a group of, of Christian men. And I had spilled my guts. I mean, very transparent. And there was a snack time afterwards, and I sat down with my snack, and I just by myself, feeling completely naked, you know, just like, oh my gosh, eating my chips. And this old man, had to have been 83 or 84 or something in there, he looks at me and he said, he was eating his chips too, on the same table, and he said, I'm not ashamed of you. And that was it. And he just kept eating his chips. And it was the most liberating spiritual, beautiful experience that someone knew everything about me and they weren't even phased. I'm not ashamed of you. Matthew McConaughey tells the same kind of story. You know that? He wrote a book recently that's, um, I've read excerpts of it, it's phenomenal. He, through his um, uh, really rowdy days as a young star, was into some really horrible things and he just went on a walkabout out in the desert, ran into this Christian monk or monastery type of a place. And he just confessed all of his sins for about four hours to this priest. He just cried, sobbed. He said it was like a cleanse. He just was like, his spirit was just just vomiting out these sins and these bad things that he had done. And he said uh, in his book, he said after about four hours, he it came to his realization that the priest hadn't said anything. He just... He hadn't said, he he, he said, I felt bad. I was talking about myself the whole entire time. So finally, he said, he kind of came up for air and looked at the guy, kind of motioning, like, is there something you'd like to say? 
And to his shock, the priest was crying too. And the, Christ, and the priest looked at him and said, me too. And he said it was, he knew he's forgiven and he met God at that moment. Why? In a community. The Bible says confess your sins one to another and be extremely embarrassed. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it says confess your sins one to another and be healed. It's true. There's a power that comes to saying, I blew it. And to somebody else saying, I still love you. I'm not ashamed of you. But he gives more grace. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Amen? Amen.